Carl Jung, Man and His Symbols, Part 1, Approaching the Unconscious, by Carl Jung. The Archetype in Dream Symbolism. I have already suggested that dreams serve the purpose of compensation. This assumption means that the dream is a normal psychic phenomenon that transmits unconscious reactions or spontaneous impulses to consciousness. Many dreams can be interpreted with the help of the dreamer, who provides both the associations to and the context of the dream image, by means of which one can look at all its aspects. This method is adequate in all ordinary cases, such as those when a relative, a friend, or a patient tells you a dream more or less in the course of conversation. But when it is a matter of obsessive dreaming or of highly emotional dreams, the personal associations produced by the dreamer do not usually suffice for a satisfactory interpretation. In such cases, we have to take into consideration the fact, first observed and commented on by Freud, that elements often occur in a dream that are not individual and that cannot be derived from the dreamer's personal experience. These elements, as I have previously mentioned, are what Freud called archaic remnants, mental forms whose presence cannot be explained by anything in the individual's own life and which seem to be aboriginal, innate and inherited shapes of the human mind. Just as the human body represents a whole museum of organs, each with a long evolutionary history behind it, so we should expect to find that the mind is organized in a similar way. It can no more be a product without history than is the body in which it exists. By history, I do not mean the fact that the mind builds itself up by conscious reference to past through language and other cultural traditions. I am referring to the biological, prehistoric, and unconscious development of the mind in archaic man, whose psyche was still close to that of the animal. This immensely old psyche forms the basis of our mind, just as much as the structure of our body is based on the general anatomical pattern of the mammal. The trained eye of the anatomist or the biologist finds many traces of this original pattern in our bodies. The experienced investigator of the mind can similarly see the analogies between the dream pictures of modern man and the products of the primitive mind, its collective images, and its mythological motifs. Just as the biologist needs the science of comparative anatomy, however, the psychologist cannot do without a comparative anatomy of the psyche. In practice, to put it differently, the psychologist must not only have a sufficient experience of dreams and other products of unconscious activity, but also of mythology in its widest sense. Without this equipment, Nobody can spot the important analogies. It is not possible, for instance, to see the analogy between a case of compulsion neurosis and that of a classical demonic possession without a working knowledge of both. My views about the archaic remnants, which I call archetypes or primordial images, have been constantly criticized by people who lack a sufficient knowledge of the psychology of dreams and of mythology. The term archetype is often misunderstood as meaning certain definite mythological images or motifs, but these are nothing more than conscious representations. It would be absurd to assume that such variable representations could be inherited. The archetype is a tendency to form such representations of a motif, representations that can vary a great deal in detail without losing their basic pattern. There are, for instance, many representations of the motif of the hostile brethren, but the motif itself remains the same. 
My critics have incorrectly assumed that I am dealing with inherited representations, and on that ground, they have dismissed the idea of the archetype as mere superstition. They have failed to take into account the fact that if archetypes were representations that originated in our consciousness or were acquired by consciousness, we would surely understand them and not be bewildered and astonished when they present themselves in our consciousness. They are indeed an instinctive trend, as marked as the impulse of birds to build nests or ants to form organized colonies. Here I must clarify the relation between instincts and archetypes. What we properly call instincts are physiological urges and are perceived by the senses. But at the same time, they also manifest themselves in fantasies and often reveal their presence only by symbolic images. These manifestations are what I call the archetypes. They are without known origin, and they reproduce themselves in any time or in any part of the world, even where transmission by direct ascent or cross-fertilization through migration must be ruled out. I can remember many cases of people who have consulted me because they were baffled by their own dreams or by their children's. They were at a complete loss to understand the terms of the dreams. The reason was that the dreams contained images that they could not relate to anything they could remember or could have passed on to their children. Yet, some of these patients were highly educated. A few of them were actually psychiatrists themselves. I vividly recall the case of a professor who had pulled a sudden vision and thought he was insane. He came to see me in a state of complete panic. I simply took a 400-year-old book from the shelf and showed him an old woodcut depicting his very vision. There's no reason for you to believe that you're insane, I said to him. They knew about your vision 400 years ago, whereupon he sat down entirely deflated, but once more normal. A very important case came to me from a man who was himself a psychiatrist. One day he brought me a handwritten booklet he had received as a Christmas present from his 10-year-old daughter. It contained a whole series of dreams she had had when she was eight. They made up the weirdest series of dreams that I have ever seen, and I could well understand why her father was more than just puzzled by them. Though childlike, they were uncanny, and they contained images whose origin was wholly incomprehensible to the father. Here are the relevant motifs from the dreams. 1. The evil animal. A snake-like monster with many horns kills and devours all other animals. But God comes from the four corners, being in fact four separate gods, and gives rebirth to all the dead animals. 2. An ascent into heaven, where pagan dances are being celebrated and a descent into hell, where angels are doing good deeds. 3. A horde of small animals frightens the dreamer. The animals increase to a tremendous size, and one of them devours the little girl. 4. A small mouse is penetrated by worms, snakes, fishes, and human beings. Thus the mouse becomes human. This portrays the four stages of the origin of mankind. 5. A drop of water is seen, as it appears when looked at through a microscope. The girl sees that the drop is full of tree branches. This portrays the origin of the world. 6. A bad boy has a clod of earth and throws bits of it at everyone who passes. In this way, all the passers-by become bad. 7. A drunken woman falls into the water and comes out renewed and sober. 8. The scene is in America, where many people are rolling on an ant heap, attacked by the ants. The dreamer, in a panic, falls into a river. 9. 
There is a desert on the moon where the dreamer sinks so deeply into the ground that she reaches hell. 10. In this dream, the girl has a vision of a luminous ball. She touches it. Vapors emanate from it. A man comes and kills her. 11. The girl dreams she is dangerously ill. Suddenly, birds come out of her skin and cover her completely. 12. Swarms of gnats obscure the sun, the moon, and all the stars except one. That one star falls upon the dreamer. In the unabridged German original, each dream begins with the words of the old fairy tale, Once upon a time. By these words, the little dreamer suggests that she feels as if each dream were a sort of fairy tale, which she wants to tell her father as a Christmas present. The father tried to explain the dreams in terms of their context, but he could not do so, for there seemed to be no personal associations to them. The possibility that these dreams were conscious elaborations can of course be ruled out only by someone who knew the child well enough to be absolutely sure of her truthfulness. They would, however, remain a challenge to our understanding, even if they were fantasies. In this case, the father was convinced that the dreams were authentic, and I have no reason to doubt it. I knew the little girl myself, but this was before she gave her dreams to her father, so that I had no chance to ask her about them. She lived abroad and died of an infectious disease about a year after that Christmas. Her dreams have a decidedly peculiar character. Their leading thoughts are markedly philosophic in concept. The first one, for instance, speaks of an evil monster killing other animals, but God gives rebirth to them all through a divine apokatastasis, or restitution. In the Western world, this idea is known through the Christian tradition. It can be found in the Acts of the Apostles, 321. Christ, whom the heaven must receive until the time of restitution of all things. The early Greek fathers of the church, for instance, Oregon, particularly insisted upon the idea that at the end of time, everything will be restored by the Redeemer to its original and perfect state. But according to St. Matthew, 1711, there was already an old Jewish tradition that Elias truly shall first come and restore all things. 1 Corinthians 15.22 refers to the same idea in the following words, For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. One might guess that the child had encountered this thought in her religious education, but she had very little religious background. Her parents were Protestants in name, but in fact they knew the Bible only from hearsay. It is particularly unlikely that the recondite image of Apokatastasis had been explained to the girl. Certainly her father had never heard of this mythical idea. Nine of the twelve dreams are influenced by the theme of destruction and restoration, and none of these dreams show traces of specific Christian education or influence. On the contrary, they are more closely related to primitive myths. This relation is corroborated by the other motif, the cosmogonic myth, the creation of the world and of man, that appears in the fourth and fifth dreams. The same connection is found in 1 Corinthians 15.22, which I have just quoted. In this passage, too, Adam and Christ, death and resurrection, are linked together. The general idea of Christ the Redeemer belongs to the worldwide and pre-Christ theme of the hero and rescuer who, although he has been devoured by a monster, appears again in a miraculous way, having overcome whatever monster it was that swallowed him. When and where such a motif originated, nobody knows. 
we do not even know how to go about investigating the problem. The one apparent certainty is that every generation seems to have known it as a tradition handed down from some preceding time. Thus, we can safely assume that it originated at a period when man did not yet know that he possessed a hero myth, in an age, that is to say, when he did not yet consciously reflect on what he was saying. The hero figure is an archetype, which has existed since time immemorial. The production of archetypes by children is especially significant, because one can sometimes be quite certain that a child has had no direct access to the tradition concerned. In this case, the girl's family had no more than a superficial acquaintance with the Christian tradition. Christian themes may, of course, be represented by such ideas as God, angels, heaven, hell, and evil, but the way in which they are treated by this child points to a totally non-Christian origin. Let us take the first dream of the god who really consists of four gods coming from the four corners. The corners of what? There is no room mentioned in the dream. A room would not even fit with the picture of what is obviously a cosmic event, in which the universal being himself intervenes. The quaternity, or element of foreness, itself is a strange idea, but one that plays a great role in many religions and philosophies. In the Christian religion, it has been superseded by the Trinity, a notion that we must assume was known to the child. But who in an ordinary middle-class family of today would be likely to know of a divine quaternity? It is an idea that was once fairly familiar among students of the Hermetic philosophy in the Middle Ages, but it petered out with the beginning of the 18th century, and it has been entirely obsolete for at least 200 years. Where, then, did the little girl pick it up? From Ezekiel's vision? But there is no Christian teaching that identifies the seraphim with God. The same question may be asked about the horned serpent. In the Bible, it is true, there are many horned animals, in the book of Revelation, for instance. But all these seem to be quadruped, although their overlord is the dragon, the Greek word for which, dracon, also means serpent. The horned serpent appears in a 16th century Latin alchemy as the quadricornutus serpens, four-horned serpent, a symbol of Mercury and an antagonist of the Christian trinity. But this is an obscure reference. So far as I can discover, it is made by only one author, and this child had no means of knowing it. In the second dream, a motif appears that is definitely non-Christian and that contains a reversal of accepted values. For instance, pagan dances by men in heaven and good deeds by angels in hell. This symbol suggests a relativity of moral values. Where did the child find such a revolutionary notion worthy of Nietzsche's genius? These questions lead us to another. What is the compensatory meaning of these dreams which the little girl obviously attributed so much importance that she presented them to her father as a Christmas present. If the dreamer had been a primitive medicine man, one could reasonably assume that they represent variations of the philosophical themes of death, of resurrection or restitution, of the origin of the world, the creation of man, and the relativity of values. But one might give up such dreams as hopelessly difficult if one tried to interpret them from a personal level. They undoubtedly contain collective images, and they are in a way analogous to the doctrines taught to young people in primitive tribes when they are about to be initiated as men. At such times they learn about what God or the gods or the founding animals have done, how the world and man were created, how the end of the world will come, and the meaning of death. Is there any occasion when we, in Christian civilization, hand out similar instructions? There is, in adolescence. 
but many people begin to think again of things like this in old age, at the approach of death. The little girl, as it happened, was in both these situations. She was approaching puberty and at the same time, the end of her life. Little or nothing in the symbolism of her dreams points to the beginning of a normal adult life, but there are many allusions to destruction and restoration. When I first read her dreams, indeed, I had the uncanny feeling that they suggested impending disaster. The reason I felt like that was the peculiar nature of the compensation that I deduced from the symbolism. It was the opposite of what one would expect to find in the consciousness of a girl of that age. These dreams open up a new and rather terrifying aspect of life and death. One would expect to find such images in an aging person who looks back upon life, rather than to be given them by a child who would normally be looking forward. Their atmosphere recalls the old Roman saying, life is but a short dream, rather than the joy and exuberance of its springtime. For this child's life was like a ver sacrum vivendum, the vow of a vernal sacrifice, as the Roman poet puts it. Experience shows that the unknown approach of death casts an adumbratio, an anticipatory shadow, over the life and dreams of the victim. Even the altar in Christian churches represents, on the one hand, a tomb, and on the other, a place of resurrection, the transformation of death into eternal life. Such are the ideas that the dreams brought home to the child. They were a preparation for death, expressed through short stories, like the tales told of primitive initiations, or the koans of Zen Buddhism. This message is unlike the orthodox Christian doctrine and more like ancient primitive thought. It seems to have originated outside historical tradition in the long-forgotten psychic sources that, since prehistoric times, have nourished philosophical and religious speculations about life and death. It was as if future events were casting their shadow back by arousing in the child certain thought forms that, though normally dormant, describe or accompany the approach of a fatal issue. Although the specific shape in which they express themselves is more or less personal, their general pattern is collective. They are found everywhere and at all times, just as animal instincts vary a good deal in the different species and yet serve the same general purposes. We do not assume that each newborn animal creates its own instincts as an individual acquisition, and we must not suppose that human individuals invent their specific human ways with every new birth. Like the instincts, the collective thought patterns of the human mind are innate and inherited. They function when the occasion arises in more or less the same way in all of us. Emotional manifestations to which such thought patterns belong are recognizably the same all over the earth. We can identify them even in animals, and the animals themselves understand one another in this respect, even though they may belong to different species. And what about insects with their complicated symbiotic functions? Most of them do not even know their parents and have nobody to teach them. Why should one assume then that man is the only living being deprived of specific instincts or that his psyche is devoid of all traces of its evolution? Naturally, if you identify the psyche with consciousness, you can easily fall into the erroneous idea that man comes into the world with a psyche that is empty and that in later years it contains nothing more than what it has learned by individual experience. But the psyche is more than consciousness. Animals have little consciousness, but many impulses and reactions that denote the existence of a psyche, and primitives do a lot of things whose meaning is unknown to them. You may ask many civilized people in vain for the real meaning of the Christmas tree or of the Easter egg. 
The fact is they do things without knowing why they do them. I am inclined to the view that things were generally done first and that it was only a long time afterward that somebody asked why they were done. The medical psychologist is constantly confronted with otherwise intelligent patients who behave in a peculiar and unpredictable way and who have no inkling of what they say or do. They are suddenly caught by unreasonable moods for which they themselves cannot account. Superficially, such reactions and impulses seem to be of an intimately personal nature, and so we dismiss them as idiosyncratic behavior. In fact, they are based upon a preformed and ever-ready instinctive system that is characteristic of man. Thought forms, universally understandable gestures, and many attributes follow a pattern that was established long before man developed a reflective consciousness. It is even conceivable that the early origins of man's capacity to reflect come from the painful consequences of violent emotional clashes. Let me take, purely as an illustration of this point, the bushman who, in a moment of anger and disappointment at his failure to catch any fish, strangles his much-beloved only son and is then seized with immense regret as he holds the little dead body in his arms. Such a man might remember this moment of pain forever. We cannot know whether this kind of experience was actually the initial cause of the development of human consciousness, but there is no doubt that the shock of a similar emotional experience is often needed to make people wake up and pay attention to what they are doing. There is the famous case of a 13th century Spanish Hidalgo, Raymond Lu, who finally, after a long chase, succeeded in meeting the lady he admired at a secret rendezvous. She silently opened her dress and showed him her breast, rotten with cancer. The shock changed Lu's life. He eventually became an eminent theologian and one of the church's greatest missionaries. In the case of such a sudden change, one can often prove that an archetype has been at work for a long time in the unconscious, skillfully arranging circumstances that will lead to the crisis. Such experiences seem to show that archetypal forms are not just static patterns. They are dynamic factors that manifest themselves in impulses, just as spontaneously as the instincts. Certain dreams, visions, or thoughts can suddenly appear, and however carefully one investigates, one cannot find out what causes them. This does not mean that they have no cause, they certainly have, but it is so remote or obscure that one cannot see what it is. In such a case, one must wait either until the dream and its meaning are sufficiently understood, or until some external event occurs that will explain the dream. At the moment of the dream, this event may still lie in the future. But just as our conscious thoughts often occupy themselves with the future and its possibilities, so do the unconscious and its dreams. There has long been a general belief that the chief function of dreams is prognostication of the future. In antiquity and as late as the Middle Ages, dreams played their part in medical prognosis. I can confirm by a modern dream the elements of prognosis, or precognition, that can be found in an old dream quoted by Artemidorus of Daldis in the 2nd century AD. A man dreamed that he saw his father die in the flames of a house on fire. Not long afterward, he himself died in a phlegmone fire, or high fever, which I presume was pneumonia. It so happened that a colleague of mine was once suffering from a deadly gangrenous fever, in fact, a phlegmone. A former patient of his, who had no knowledge of the nature of his doctor's illness, dreamed that the doctor died in a great fire. At that time, the doctor had just entered a hospital and the disease was only beginning. The dreamer knew nothing but the bare fact that his doctor was ill and in a hospital. Three weeks later, the doctor died. As this example shows, dreams may have an anticipatory or prognostic aspect, 
and anybody trying to interpret them must take this into consideration, especially where an obviously meaningful dream does not provide a context sufficient to explain it. Such a dream often comes right out of the blue, and one wonders what could have prompted it. Of course, if one knew its ulterior message, its cause would be clear, for it is only our consciousness that does not yet know. The unconscious seems already informed, and to have come to a conclusion that is expressed in the dream. In fact, the unconscious seems to be able to examine and to draw conclusions from facts, much as consciousness does. It can even use certain facts and anticipate their possible results, just because we are not conscious of them. But as far as one can make out from dreams, the unconscious makes its deliberations instinctively. The distinction is important. Logical analysis is the prerogative of consciousness. We select with reason and knowledge. The unconscious, however, seems to be guided chiefly by instinctive trends, represented by corresponding thought forms, that is, by the archetypes. A doctor who is asked to describe the course of an illness will use such rational concepts as infection or fever. The dream is more poetic. It presents the diseased body as a man's earthly house, and the fever as the fire that is destroying it. As the above dream shows, the archetypal mind has handled the situation in the same way as it did in the time of Artemidorus. Something that is of a more or less unknown nature has been intuitively grasped by the unconscious and submitted to an archetypal treatment. This suggests that instead of the process of reasoning that conscious thought would have applied, the archetypal mind has stepped in and taken over the task of prognostication. The archetypes thus have their own initiative and their own specific energy. These powers enable them both to produce a meaningful interpretation in their own symbolic style and to interfere in a given situation with their own impulses and their own thought formations. In this respect, they function like complexes. They come and go very much as they please, and often they obstruct or modify our conscious intentions in an embarrassing way. One can perceive the specific energy of archetypes when we experience the peculiar fascination that accompanies them. They seem to hold a special spell. Such a peculiar quality is also characteristic of personal complexes. And just as personal complexes have their individual history, so do social complexes of an archetypal character. But while personal complexes never produce more than a personal bias, archetypes create myths, religions, and philosophies that influence and characterize whole nations and epochs of history. We regard the personal complexes as compensations for one-sided or faulty attitudes of consciousness. In the same way, myths of a religious nature can be interpreted as a sort of mental therapy for the sufferings and anxieties of mankind in general, hunger, war, disease, old age, death. The universal hero myth, for example, always refers to a powerful man or god-man who vanquishes evil in the form of dragons, serpents, monsters, demons, and so on, and who liberates his people from destruction and death. The narration or ritual repetition of sacred texts and ceremonies and the worship of such a figure with dances, music, hymns, prayers, and sacrifices grip the audience with numinous emotions, as if with magic spells, and exalt the individual to an identification with the hero. If we try to see such a situation with the eyes of the believer, we can perhaps understand how the ordinary man can be liberated from his personal impotence and misery and endowed, at least temporarily, with an almost superhuman quality. Often enough, such a conviction will sustain him for a long time and give a certain style to his life. 
It may even set the tone of a whole society. A remarkable instance of this can be found in the Eleusinian Mysteries, which were finally suppressed in the beginning of the 7th century of the Christian era. They expressed, together with the Delphic Oracle, the essence and spirit of ancient Greece. On a much greater scale, the Christian era itself owes its name and significance to the antique mystery of the God-man, which has its roots in the archetypal Osiris Horus myth of ancient Egypt. It is commonly assumed that on some given occasion in prehistoric times, the basic mythological ideas were invented by a clever old philosopher or prophet, and ever afterward believed by a credulous and uncritical people. It is said that stories told by a power-seeking priesthood are not true, but merely wishful thinking. But the very word invent is derived from the Latin invenire, and means to find, and hence to find something by seeking it. In the latter case, the word itself hints at some foreknowledge of what you are going to find. Let me go back to the strange idea contained in the dreams of the little girl. It seems unlikely that she sought them out, since she was surprised to find them. They occurred to her rather as peculiar and unexpected stories, which seemed noteworthy enough to be given to her father as a Christmas present. In doing so, however, she lifted them up into the sphere of our still-living Christian mystery, the birth of our Lord, mixed with the secret of the evergreen tree that carries the newborn light. This is the reference of the fifth dream. Although there is ample historical evidence for the symbolic relation between Christ and the tree symbol, the little girl's parents would have been gravely embarrassed had they been asked to explain exactly what they meant by decorating a tree with burning candles to celebrate the nativity of Christ. Oh, it's just a Christmas custom, they would have said. A serious answer would require a far-reaching dissertation about the antique symbolism of the dying god and its relation to the cult of the Great Mother and her symbol, the tree, to mention only one aspect of this complicated problem. The further we delve into the origin of a collective image, or to express it in ecclesiastical language of a dogma, the more we uncover a seemingly unending web of archetypal patterns that, before modern times, were never the object of conscious reflection. Thus, paradoxically enough, we know more about mythological symbolism than did any generation before our own. The fact is that in former times, men did not reflect upon their symbols. They lived them and were unconsciously animated by their meaning. I will illustrate this by an experience I once had with the primitives of Mount Elgon in Africa. Every morning at dawn, they leave their huts and breathe or spit into their hands, which they then stretch out to the first rays of the sun as if they were offering either their breath or their spittle to the rising god, to Mungu. This Swahili word, which they used in explaining the ritual act, is derived from a Polynesian root equivalent to mana, or mulungu. These and similar terms designate a power of extraordinary efficiency and pervasiveness, which you should call divine. Thus the word Mungu is their equivalent for Allah, or God. When I asked them what they meant by this act, or why they did it, they were completely baffled. They could only say, we have always done it. It has always been done when the sun rises. They laughed at the obvious conclusion that the sun is Mungu. The sun indeed is not Mungu when it is above horizon. Mungu is the actual moment of the sunrise. What they were doing was obvious to me, but not to them. They just did it, never reflecting on what they did. They were consequently unable to explain themselves. I concluded that they were offering their souls to Mungu, because the breath of life and the spittle mean soul substance. To breathe or spit upon something conveys a magical effect, 
as for instance when Christ used spittle to cure the blind, or where a son inhales his dying father's last breath in order to take over the father's soul. It is most unlikely that these Africans ever, even in the remote past, knew any more about the meaning of their ceremony. In fact, their ancestors probably knew even less, because they were more profoundly unconscious of their motives and thought less about their doings. Goethe's Faust aptly says, In the beginning was the deed. Deeds were never invented, they were done. Thoughts, on the other hand, are a relatively late discovery of man. First he was moved to deeds by unconscious factors. It was only a long time afterward that he began to reflect upon the causes that had moved him, and it took him a very long time indeed to arrive at the preposterous idea that he must have moved himself, his mind being unable to identify any other motivating force than his own. We should laugh at the idea of a plant or an animal inventing itself, yet there are many people who believe that the psyche or mind invented itself, and thus was the creator of its own existence. As a matter of fact, the mind has grown to its present state of consciousness as an acorn grows into an oak, or as saurians developed into mammals. As it has for so long been developing, so it still develops, and thus we are moved by forces from within as well as by stimuli from without. These inner motives spring from a deep source that is not made by consciousness and is not under its control. In the mythology of earlier times, these forces were called mana, or spirits, demons, and gods. They are as active today as they ever were. If they conform to our wishes, we call them happy hunches or impulses, and pat ourselves on the back for being smart fellows. If they go against us, then we say that it is just bad luck, or that certain people are against us, or that the cause of our misfortunes must be pathological. The one thing we refuse to admit is that we are dependent upon powers that are beyond our control. It is true, however, that in recent times, civilized man has acquired a certain amount of willpower, which he can apply where he pleases. He has learned to do his work efficiently without having recourse to chanting and drumming to hypnotize him into the state of doing. He can even dispense with a daily prayer for divine aid. He can carry out what he proposes to do, and he can apparently translate his ideas into action without a hitch, whereas the primitive seems to be hampered at each step by fears, superstitions, and other unseen obstacles to action. The motto, where there's a will, there's a way, is the superstition of a modern man. Yet in order to sustain his creed, contemporary man pays the price in a remarkable lack of introspection. He is blind to the fact that, with all his rationality and efficiency, he is possessed by powers that are beyond his control. His gods and demons have not disappeared at all. They have merely got new names. They keep him on the run with restlessness, vague apprehensions, psychological complications, an insatiable need for pills, alcohol, tobacco, food, and above all, a large array of neuroses.